as you're taking a seat, I want to mention just this one more thing, kind of an announcement kind of thing. Um, if you have not and you aren't sure or you're not maybe interested, but, but I want to challenge you to think about it. We gather for one more week. This is the last week, so tomorrow through Saturday. So Monday through Friday, we p- gather to pray at 7 a.m. Um, and also again at 6.30 p.m. And so if you haven't come, I challenge you to just come one time. And you're like, well, that's an hour that you want us to pray? Well, yeah, but we actually give you some guides and some other stuff that are helpful. So it goes by a little faster than you think. Um, so in all truth, we use a, another church to kind of help guide some of this. And so you really, you might actually only pray for like 20 to 25 minutes. You probably can survive. And uh, we'd love you to think about coming and be a part of that. And if you have prayer requests, uh, there is a table in the foyer that would love for you to write down your prayer requests. And there's a group of us who are gathering to pray every day. And uh, every request that's been turned in has been prayed over at least once a day, if not twice a day, by multiple people. So we'd just like to, to challenge and think about that. But that's not what I'm talking about today. Uh, what I am talking about is how many of you have ever found yourself being like a daydreamer? Right, like I'm pretty good at daydreaming. Like I, it's like a skill. Um, I mean, sometimes people call it spacing out or just thinking or whatever it is, but, but you begin to dream. But how many of us, our daydreams are kind of boring? They're like super realistic, and so there's nothing really adventurous about it. Um, it's kind of the reality of the world around us. Um, in fact, maybe you used to dream dreams that were more unrealistic, and people said to you things like this, well, when you're older, you just won't think that way anymore. I can't help but think maybe that happens because our dreams die. I mean, what if maybe the reality is what might happen if we could daydream or dream like we were kids again? What if the world the way it is isn't the way the world has to be? And what if we could think about it differently? I mean, as a kid, I would daydream all kinds of stuff. Like, I for sure was going to play in the NBA. Still waiting on that one. Hasn't happened yet. But, you know, who knows? Um, I dream about flying planes or I dream about pretty normal stuff. But every once in a while, I'd, I'd watch like a movie like Aladdin. Right? And so then I'd think, ooh, what if I had three wishes? Right? What would I wish for? Right, so obviously being super athletic would be on the list, right? I'd like to play the NBA dream, then it would happen. Um, the second one often would be like, well, um, like a billion dollars, of course, lots of money. That would make lots and lots of sense. Um, or maybe, maybe the ability to eat all the dessert I would ever want and never gain weight. Like, I'm like, I'm in, you know? It's, those are like pretty solid dreams, I would then think about, what would it be like if you had, like, a magic carpet and a genie? You know, like, what? Like, you begin to ask these things in your head. I'm like, hmm, what would that be like to just fly on a carpet and look down? I'm afraid of heights, so I probably have to wish to not be afraid of heights first. Um, but still, like, this is, I, I would just dream about what could be. And so I can't help but thinking that maybe, maybe you're like me and you would put yourself in stories. Whether there are books or movies and you would see yourself as the main character and you would just begin to think, oh, I, I mean, I was the Count of Monte Cristo when I read the book. I mean, I, what, who would you become? See, I can't help but think there are times when we see the world around us, and if we dreamed of better ways, maybe we would begin to see better ways. But I think we have bad imaginations. I think we dream poorly. I think we struggle to imagine better ways because we live in a world in which we see the same things repeated all around us. And I think we actually see glimpses um, all throughout the Old Testament at the character of God. 
we see glimpses of who God really is, but we sometimes miss it because I think sometimes even some of the writers of the Old Testament, they miss the character of God. That's why Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, that's why we don't stone people anymore. It's why we don't do lots of things anymore, because we might have just misunderstood the character of God. And so I can't help but think that somehow in those scriptures, though, we get glimpses, especially through the prophets. We get glimpses of the character and the nature of God, the way he intends for us to see him. But often the prophets would speak with these words that would speak life, but the people would miss it because they had really bad imaginations. Their assumption was that because the world is this way, it has to stay this way. And so they wouldn't see with clear eyes what the prophets were saying. They would go, oh, these crazy people are just saying crazy things. And the truth is, not until later could we look back and see the kind of imagination of the prophets and begin to put those in language. We go, oh, that's what they meant. That's what they were saying. I get it now. See, here's the way I would say this. We sometimes miss God's truth in our day because we lack a prophetic imagination. We sometimes miss God's truth in our day because we miss the prophetic imagination. The prophets had an imagination of God doing things that didn't seem to make sense in the world around them because we all think the world is the way it is and that's just how it's got to be. But the prophets knew the character and nature of God and that's just not true. I mean, one example, we lacked imaginations in the first century when Jesus came into Jerusalem. The people lacked imagination. They saw him riding in. They laid down their palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna, God save us. And they thought for sure this is the triumphal entry of the king. But Jesus comes in on a donkey, the symbol of peace, not a horse, the symbol of war. Jesus comes in. He takes the servant's road, not the king's road. He dies on a cross. He doesn't raise up an army. They expected the empire to come as every other empire comes. But that's not how Jesus came. They lacked the imagination of the prophets. They missed the truth telling of the prophets. So I'm just going to mention some words from Isaiah. This isn't our main text, but just these words from Isaiah chapter 11. This just kind of tells us about the character and nature of God and the character and nature of Jesus. Here's what Isaiah writes. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. 
The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Did you catch those pictures? I'm just going to read some of these again. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling together. A little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, not be eaten by the bear. Their young will lie down together, and a lion will eat straw like an ox. Did you catch the way the prophet Isaiah says, hey, there's the way the world is. But there's the way God's going to make this world. And it doesn't look the way it looks right now. And so Jesus points all throughout these kind of prophetic moments throughout the Old Testament in his teaching and his speaking. And he says, do you not see these glimpses of the true nature and character of God all throughout? Let me tell you, these prophets, they kind of nailed it. In fact, there's another prophet, Micah, who wrote, what, what, there's no way around, it's just a really small book. I mean, it's a small little book in your Bible. Uh, it's just a few chapters long. But Micah, this kind of small prophet, he began to speak into the world around us, around him. And his prophetic words are probably helpful for us today. I mean, many of you have heard these words from Micah 6, 8. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Right? Those words you've heard, but this is the context in which Micah is writing. Micah is writing to a people who are economically prosperous. It's the first time since after Solomon's death, Solomon is king, like the, the nation was split in two, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and, and they were overrun by all kinds of other empires. And this is like a time of freedom after that. And their economic prosperity, they've gotten rich. In fact, it's said to be the richest time from, since Solomon. And so Micah speaks to these people. They are wealthy. The economy is booming. But they are morally and spiritually bankrupt. And so Micah begins to speak. And he says, don't you know? Because in, in that world, I mean, man, I, I can't imagine a world in which the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Can you imagine a world like that? This was happening. And Micah speaks this. And he goes, don't you know the measure, the way God measures what's good? Don't you understand the way this works? Don't you understand that when God sees injustice all around him? I mean, don't you get what God does in this? And so Micah sees all these injustices, and he begins to speak the prophetic words of God to the people. He says, don't you remember you were supposed to be a beacon of light to the world? You were to be a hope to the entire world, and you look just like everybody else. You care more about your wallet than your heart. You care about more than your own interests and the interests of others. Don't you understand that this is, this is not how I called you to live? And so Micah speaks these words in chapter 6, the first eight verses. He says these things. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. This is God speaking. Hear you mountains the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. Also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. See, here's the reality. Um, Micah is writing to a people and said, don't you know the God who has been faithful when it makes no sense? He references this exodus out of Egypt. It really is an incredible story, right? I mean, it's the story where, where Israel is leaving Egypt. They've been slaves for 400 years. The greatest empire, the greatest army in the world in that day is running after them. And God saves them. Not because he raised up an army, but because he was their army. Don't you know when you're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and all the people were plotting against you, don't you know that I made it happen? Don't you know, don't you remember what has taken place? And so Micah lays out the heart of God and he says here... God doesn't desire all the things outside of you. He desires you. All of you. I mean, it's this idea that we can offer up all kinds of things, but God desires a way of life, a heart, a mind, our lives, the very essence of our being. It's why he says, I want you, your heart, mind, soul, strength. I want you to love me with all that you are. And all that can really be summarized in this idea, we're called to be people defined by a prophetic imagination, who imagine, who dream that God might be doing something different. I mean, it's why we're talking about what does it look like to bridge the gap in what we're doing from what is to what could be. So there is the way the world is. I'm not debating that. I'm pretty realistic when I see the world around us. But I also read the words of the prophets. I read the words of Jesus and I go, yeah, but that's not the way it has to be. It may be the world in which we live, but it doesn't have to be. And it requires us having a different imagination and begin to see it. And so these words, to to translate them a little bit more literally at the end in verse 8, these words again would say this. Do justice to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. I mean, this is a call to be all that God has for us, to see His imagination, to use his imagination as our filter. It's why we should read the entire Bible from the perspective of Jesus. Call that like a Christocentric perspective. Reading from Christ-centered idea that the words of Jesus should shape then how we understand all of Scripture. In fact, Jesus references these words of Micah 6, 8 in Matthew chapter 23 when he says this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a nap, but swallow a camel. So how do we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God today? Well, there's one thing I want to mention that we see all throughout the Old and the New Testament. The measure of the faithfulness of God's people is seen by their care of the people in the margins. God is always the God of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. The measure of the faithfulness of God's people is always seen by their care of the people in the margins. 
God is the God of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. If you hear nothing else today, hear that and know that. Because if we're not the people of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, then we are not the people of God. And then I came across this week these words from Jeffrey Overstreet as he was kind of wrestling through and commenting on these words from Micah 6 eight: Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. I'm just going to read them to you. Uh, these are his words, not mine. I, I just thought they were worth sharing. Because he says the order of these words matter. Justice, mercy, humility. And he writes these words. I can watch the news, see barbaric acts carried out against God's children, and feel rage, feel fury. And feel a roaring desire for justice. To be honest, I can feel that desire to see a cosmic sledgehammer brought down on others for a lot less than murder. I can find myself wanting it if somebody offends me on social media or treats me unfairly at work or cuts me off in traffic. But justice is good, right? I'm supposed to seek it. That's part one. But if when I call for justice... I'm actually voicing the human appetite for payback, for equal and opposite violence against a wrongdoer, and I'd better watch out. Such a standard of justice applied to me would demand a price I don't want to pay. The more I attend to Christ, the more I realize how I would not remain standing under the rule of sledgehammer justice, that swift, violent, painful justice that I find myself wishing upon others. God's justice isn't about payback. It isn't a sledgehammer. It isn't an eye for an eye. It's mysterious. So then, I have to ask myself, if I'm going to gratefully rely on God's mercy in order to escape sledgehammer justice, why am I so slow to hope for mercy for my enemies? Even when Jesus' enemies were in the full violence of their sin, crucifying him, he did not cry justice like some movie hero. Instead, he opened his arms to their violence, and as he suffered and died, asked God to have mercy on his enemies, to show forgiveness where it was not wanted, asked for, or deserved. That seems crazy. It is crazy. Because it lets the violent win. Unless, unless there's something bigger than violence, more powerful than killing, unless having struck a blow, the violent only think They've won. I believe that God has been merciful to me in spite of my daily failures and offenses. And because of that, I'm beginning to realize what it must mean to seek God's kind of justice. It must mean that I should seek to offer others what has been shown to me. That I suspect is the justice God wants me to seek. Seeking justice leads me to understand that true justice is about loving mercy. I'm going to read that line again because I think it's so good. True justice... Is about loving mercy. That's part two. For me to show mercy to my enemies, even if they're unrepentant, even if it comes at the cost of my life, that seems crazy. But that's how the gospel flips everything. When I catch a sight of that, it's kind of terrifying. Jesus really did make all things new. Jesus' love and mercy is the kind that never repays violence with the violent justice but that embraces the violence brought upon it in order to reveal that violence and death are weaker than the love that swallows them up. That's why Jesus' disciples did not become an armed plot to carry out violence against those who had persecuted him, to wage war against those who wanted to eliminate the church. They got it. 
They understood that they were under no threat at all, that nothing could separate them from their maker or his plan. Violence against them would only bring them into deeper union with Jesus, who had suffered it all. Paul's words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is to say, for me to live is a chance to show mercy. And if I die, I'll be blessed with full union with God. As my friend Scott Cairns likes to say, all fires are remedial. Either I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For Jesus' love reveals that death is just a shadowy valley. He is with me. And he did this. He was attacked. He was even killed. And he was not defeated. We share his sufferings when we fall under death's shadows. But we move through it with him. Every act of murderous violence brought against the people of God will reveal in time the greater measure of God's mercies. Holding on to that perspective, though, as the enemies of the gospel are carrying out their violence against believers, that's hard work. That requires a vigorous humility. Maybe that's part of why we're asked to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Part three. Perhaps that's why I was so moved watching Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s story as I watched Selma. Or I was so inspired by the story of the monks in the film of Gods and Men. Those stories looked like real gospel. It's not difficult to type these words, but to live them? I really don't know how to live them moment to moment. Maybe writing about this is a step toward an actual practice. So we've been talking this year about what does it look like for us to be a people who begin to see with God's eyes. We recognize the world as it is, but we begin to see what it looked like, what it could be, to bridge the gap from what is to what could be. And I can't help but think we need to think with a, a new kind of imagination, what we, we've, I've been terming a prophetic imagination. In fact, there's a guy named Walter Brueggemann who wrote a book called Prophetic Imagination. What if we begin to dream and see as the prophets of old? What if we begin to see the words of Micah? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God, can redefine the way we see the world and understand ourselves in it. And so what if we put that prophetic imagination together with with the idea of what God wants us to do in the world to bridge the gap in the world in which we live. And like I said before, I'm not super tech savvy, so we got to kind of do this a little differently today. But um, I'm going to walk through just the idea of what does it look like. We've been talking about bridge the gap, and last week we talked about bridge the gap spiritually. We're talking about what does this look like for us as a community of faith over these next 10 years. And so what does it mean for us to bridge the gap generationally, and in terms of justice and kindness, this is what we've been talking about today. So, from what is to what could be, there we go, all right, now we'll go to the next one after that. But so, bridge the gap generationally, what's that mean? Um, as a community of faith, we have to figure out how to grow younger. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but we all grow older, it's, it's what happens every day we're older than the day before. I mean, sometimes we wish we could like hit pause, you can't. I've tried, right? Like, I probably like, like my 21 or 22-year-old self is like my best shape. I want to go back to that. It's not happening, right? I've got more gray hairs. They keep showing up. So we can't go backward, but we can only go forward. So we have to figure out how to reach down as community of faith. That means every generation. So if you're 96, you know, there's a 76-year-old you could probably mentor. If you're 76, there's probably someone in their 50s. If you're in your 50s, 30s. If you're 16, there's a 6-year-old. Right? Every generation has to learn to reach down because the truth is when we reach down, we actually find that they reach up 
it's always the job of the older to go to the younger, not the other way around. And when you do that, you end up, I'm telling you from experience, the more you reach down, the more you learn from it, and the more you grow, probably more than they do. We have to continue to figure out how to connect with young families. It is a trying time for young families today. We live in a culture which pretty much every family, both, both parents work. It becomes this unique environment. We've got to figure out how to equip families better. Right? We have to become more multi-ethnic. For my kids' generation, they're going to notice the absence of diversity. Not that diversity actually exists. I don't know if you look around this room, but it's a little too white. It just is. It requires effort for that to not be true. Uh, we have to continue to create young space for young leaders. Um, we want to continue to reach more kids because in our community there are more and more people. In fact, it's, it's like 73% of our community is unchurched. It's 79%. I'm sorry, 79%. So that's a lot of people, by the way. It's 180,000 people in Muskegon County who don't have a church they claim is their own. It's for us to reach, especially the next generation. We need more of you to figure out how to serve in some way. Um, so there's a picture here of a family. This is, this is the Bond family. Showed you this picture before. I love Mike and Nancy's family because they're the epitome of what churches should look like. They're just really diverse from different walks of life and different faith backgrounds, and they all gather together and they they become one. This is what God does. He invites us to be this unique people. So we'll turn the page. But here's I'm trying to summarize these in four lines for you. This is the four on the wall out here. Uh, we want to bridge the generational gap, and here's how we do that. We want to figure out how to empower young leaders. If we don't make space for the next generation coming behind us, then they will leave and go someplace where they could either make their own space or they'll just bow out. Second, we want to equip families. Um, third, we want to invest across generations because there's no one generation that's more valuable than the other, but we invest across them. And then finally, we want to embrace diversity because um, we just need to look different. Uh, the next one, bridge the gap in justice and kindness. We've been talking about this verse the whole time. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And so we've been asking this question, we'll continue to ask this question over these next 10 years. What is the greatest gap in our community and what should we be involved in? It's why in a couple of weeks we're talking about suicide. Um, it's why we talk about addiction. It's why we talk about recovery. It's why we recognize that God can redeem, but we also sometimes need help to do that. And so we want to see what are those biggest gaps in our community that we can bridge. Uh, we also want to be the church who learns to model charitable discourse. I shouldn't even have to put this one on here, by the way. I shouldn't. But I do. Right? We let some of the dumbest things divide us. We let politics or vaccinations or social issues cause such division that we don't know how to have conversations. We don't understand that there can be nuanced views that are different than my own. Instead, we automatically become polar opposites. I have to be right. They have to be wrong. Notice that is rarely what Jesus does when it comes to people who have differing views in him in certain areas. And sometimes we take those stances at the expense of the good news of Jesus. We take what really are non-essential things when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the work of Jesus, and we make them the most important thing, and then we alienate a whole group of people. And so we want to bridge the gap. And so on this next slide, it says, what's the greatest opportunity gap in our community? We don't really know, but we're trying to figure that out. How do we maximize our community involvement? It's why the month of March we partner with Kids Food Basket. It's why next month we'll be collecting books to give to underprivileged kids in our community. It's why we have several in here who are mentoring in local schools. Um, we know predominantly it's Fruitport schools, but that's because they keep reaching out to us. 
we've reached out to the others and, and don't get a lot of feedback. So if you know people in Orchard View or Oak Ridge who are in places of leadership, tell them to respond. But the reality is we want to be better at this, and so we continue to do community projects in various ways. Um, we want to take at least three mission trips by 2020. Uh, in fact, we're taking the first one this summer to Costa Rica. We think it's important for us to see the church is not just a Muskegon or West Michigan or American thing. The church is a global, and so we want to make sure our eyes are open to God at work around the world, our brothers and sisters in other places. That's why we keep asking this question, what does God require of us? It's to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Again, let's bridge the gap in terms of justice and kindness. See, what if, what if the church was known for the way it spoke into justice in the right ways and offered kindness in places we don't typically think about it? What if we could help people become the full potential of what God has for them? They could become all that God desires? What if we could break the cycles of brokenness that exist in families from generation to generation? What if we spoke into those things instead of just our pet projects that really don't matter? That's the question. How do we do that? It requires a prophetic imagination to see differently. There's a slide for Costa Rica that I probably should have taken out, but I left it on accident, so there you go. But look at this last slide again. What does God require of us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly? See, the reality is for you and I to bridge the gap from what is to what could be, we have to begin to see differently than we've ever seen before. We've got to start to dream. Dream with God's eyes, not with our own. Begin to see the world from his perspective, not, not just from ours, not just what we've been raised up in. We've got to begin to open our eyes. It's why the prophets were always killed in their lifetime. Right? People hated the prophets. Like We were like, oh, did you see what Isaiah wrote? It's so good today. Yeah, that's because we weren't around when Isaiah was around. Like No one liked Isaiah. They didn't like Micah. They didn't like Jeremiah. They didn't like all these people. Why? Because they would say things like, yeah, but that's not how the world is. I get it. It isn't. But what Micah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the other prophets, and most of you don't even know their names, right? Zephaniah and Hezekiah, they kept saying, again, do you want to know who God is? Here's what God wants the world to look like. You be my people and live this way. Yeah, but that's not who we want to be. That's not how the world is. That's why when Micah spoke these words and said, hey, here's who God is, one half of the kingdom began to live a little more rightly, and they got an extra generation of prosperity, they got an extra generation because they repented and they began to take care of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. They began to look like God's people the way he had called them to be a blessing to the world. The other half, they didn't. They kept oppressing. They kept not caring for those in the margins. The Assyrians came in and wiped them out. Micah, his words from Micah 6 eight, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. We put them on t-shirts now, or we talk about them, because they're kind of good words, they're catchy. I, I like them. But if we're going to embrace them, if we begin to see the world with a prophetic imagination, so we then begin to bridge the gap from what is. We, we recognize the truth of what is. But we go, but yeah, but it doesn't have to be. Because I know who Jesus is. And he literally is changing the world. 
There was the expectation of the way God was going to come and redeem and restore, and Jesus did the opposite. And so I don't know what it looks like to have this prophetic imagination, but I'm going to lean into it. And that's our challenge for what would happen if in 10 years, if in 10 years we saw the world as it is, we said, yeah, but we're not good with how it is. And so we're going to do everything we can to live in such a way that we begin to see what could be. And it happens because God is at work. We come to know Jesus and the salvation he offers us to change the very essence of our being. And we begin to see the world with the prophetic imagination of the prophets before us. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. And so as we sing one final song today, just answering the question, yes, I will. I'll live that way because I believe you take and you redeem and you restore and you change us. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to see the world with new eyes, that we would see as your son sees. That for us to take seriously the words of Micah, that we would be a part of justice and mercy and humility. And we'd recognize that even your son said, yeah, do all the other stuff, but don't forget these things matter too. It's not one or the other. It's not that we... We do the outward practices and inwardly we're messed up. It's that we, we get changed inwardly and we continue to do outward practice. And so, Father, we pray that somehow you would help us to become your unique people, radically defined by your hope and your grace and your peace. That we as a community of faith really would do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. And we would recognize that God is always the God of the poor and the oppressed marginalized. And so Father, help us to be your people today. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand and sing together?